Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So nationalism in sports is pretty normal, right? When you've got an international competition, everybody gets a little riled up, start making some jokes at the other country's expense. But what we saw this week in the European soccer tournament was a little bit different. In Germany's game against Hungary on Wednesday, the German captain was wearing a rainbow armband. The fans on the Germany side were wearing rainbow flags. There's a, there a whole rainbow motif going on on the German side. This wasn't just because it was Pride Month. It was a specific protest, not only of a law recently passed by the Hungarian government that would limit the ability of Hungarians to talk about LGBT culture in a series of public spaces and education spheres, but also a protest of the European Soccer Federation, which tried to stop the German stadium from lighting up in rainbow colors. So there's a lot going on here, and we're going to unpack what this says both about European politics and about the nature of the government in Hungary today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams, and sadly, for the last time as an official host, Alex Ward. Hey. So of course we chose soccer. Well, we had to. Right, yeah, like it's a special gift. Pretty much every week before the episodes, Alex lobbies us for some kind of soccer content. I don't know what it is, but it's always something from the BBC, and the headline has football in it. And there's, <laughs> you know, a, he's very excited about it, and we never do it because Jen and I don't care very much. But this, as it turns out, is very important and very <laughs> interesting. True, and, Jen does not care much about yeah. soccer. And not just about soccer. And plus, I, I think, Alex, we, we need to give you a little gift, a little, a little nice present. It's very kind. Yeah, what soccer is to you guys is like what talking about Middle East policy every week is to me. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Outvoted. (laughs) I guess guess maybe we should start uh, with the the sort of less fun part of this and talk about the actual Hungarian law. So, Jen, why don't don't you start talking a little bit about what this new law does? It was just passed earlier this month and has really met with quite a backlash on the European continent. Yeah. So the legislation was originally just supposed to increase sentences for sex crimes against children, but there were a bunch of last-minute changes to the bill that made it about something very different. It includes restrictions against showing or popularizing homosexuality or any content that promotes a gender that diverges from the one assigned at birth toward children, toward anyone under 18. So it requires things like labeling a content that might fall into the category of not recommended for those under 18 years of age, uh, which that stuff would be restricted from the media, so like TV. And it would also, you have to be a registered organization or group to be able to teach sex education in schools. You can't teach anything to children that would suggest or promote homosexuality. Um, It is conflated 
on purpose by the Hungarian government as meant to protect children from pedophilia. Um, there is, of course, a very long and terrible history of an inappropriate false conflation between pedophilia and homosexuality. But it's designed, this law, you know, it's framed as being about protecting kids from the gay agenda. Um, and and the, the proponents of it say, look, it, it has nothing to do with, you know, adults being able to express themselves. We just don't want kids exposed to this. Obviously, critics, and I would agree with them, say it is about stifling expression of LGBTQ views and representation. And so it is part of the kind of broader crackdown, a series of kind of anti-LGBT laws that have been passed in Hungary. I mean, the bill's fundamentally rotten, right, from its from its premise. The idea that you could sneak in a, a series of provisions targeting the LGBT community into an anti-pedophilia bill is, as Jen said, like a fundamentally discriminatory act. But the way the bill is worded in its specifics also leaves a lot of room for censorship, right? So it the exact wording in, in translation is that content that popularizes homosexuality or trans identity can't be aired on television except during the hours of between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m. So when most kids are asleep is the idea. What qualifies as popularizing these things is very unclear, right? So RTL Klub, which is the largest television broadcaster in the country, wrote a complaint being like, we don't think we can air Harry Potter during the day anymore because there are some gay characters. Now, the government says it's not that broad, or some of its defenders say that, but like no one actually knows. And that's part of the point, right? The idea is that they don't want people talking about gay identities or trans identities or queer identities with kids. They just don't want them to be exposed to it. And there's like an interesting article in a pro-government intellectual journal that I read that's like very explicit about this, right? Their view is that kids are susceptible to having their identity changed by queer propaganda or trans propaganda. And if you expose kids to that through television programming or through their sex education classes, where the restrictions are even tighter, right? Like you can't talk about gay sex or how to have sex as a same-sex couple safely now in sex education courses in Hungary. They think that that could turn kids trans if you talk about trans identity in these classes is the, is the argument in the article. And so you need to ban it because they say, and I quote, protecting children does not end with stopping sex offenders, but should also include protection from potentially harmful influences until children are old enough to make the best decisions for themselves. Right? It's very clear there that being trans is, is, is understood as harmful. Right, and that's it. That's that's what this bill is about. It is about, if not outright criminalizing identity, walking very close up to the line. And it's a part of a longer term thing going on in Orban's yeah. government, which has been when he's been in charge since 2010. This, in effect, is kind of like an add-on in a way, not to minimize it, but it's sort of part of a an ongoing series of legislation which is meant to like block same-sex couples from adopting children or you know having your 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 surgeries or whatever it may you may need. It's part of a longer-term effort that Orban has been doing since he's been in charge since 2010. I mean, they, there's a, a ban on same-sex couples from adopting children. There's now in the Constitution a provision that like marriage is only between a man and a woman. Like this is something that his government is instituting on purpose, in part for uh, it sort of in, in the broader sense of Viktor Orban's vision of like a Christian nation, you know, with traditional values, conservative traditional values. That's their their argument there. And then the reason sort of to do this now is, 
he's trying to bolster his uh, ultra conservative bona fides ahead of a, a, a big parliamentary election next year, where even though he and, and Zach has written extensively and, and, and well on this, while he has a, a pretty firm grip over Hungary at this point, there are some challenges to his rule, including from the sort of a new mayor in Budapest who seems to be uniting people from the far right and the far left. And that who many people expect could be a challenger next year. I, you know, the, the smart money is on Orban to somehow pull off a victory, right? Um, and, and, and with whatever way he can figure that out. But like, this is part of the reason to do this now. And of course, it has received uh, immense backlash from, uh, from the European Union. An inconvenient fact for Hungary is that it is in the European Union and Orban is trying to do anti-EU things. And the EU as a bloc, all 27 nations, are supposed to be welcoming towards the you know, LGBTQ community and towards asylum seekers and, 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 and a whole bunch of other things that it wants to do. And Orban is spitting in their face, actively working against the sort of larger bloc's interests and, and, and designs. Uh, and it's led to this just pretty open confrontation between the EU's top leaders and, and just, you know, leaders in those nations and, and Orban. Yeah, the relationship between the authoritarian turn that you're describing, Alex, and the politics surrounding gender and LGBT identity are, are very complicated. It's worth stating at the outset that they're they're not the same thing, right? It's not the case that because the government is socially conservative, even a hardline aggressive kind of social conservatism that you're seeing in Hungary, that it is authoritarian, right? They are separate policy axes, so to speak. But it is the case that the social conservatism in Hungary entrenches the authoritarian rule there in a number of different interesting ways. First, you know, the public is more conservative in Hungary than it is in Western European countries, right? So same-sex marriage has um, under 50% support in the Hungarian population, whereas rates are—that's an increase relative to— some years ago, but it is much lower than the rates that you see in the United States now or in, in, in most of Western Europe. So for that point, it's just like, this is how you rally your base, right? This is the kind of politics that you do. And in a competitive authoritarian regime like Hungary's, you need to do that. You still need people actually to vote for you, even if you've rigged the game in your favor. It's just, you got to get them to turn out. And next year's election, the 2022 election, Alex was just talking about, is really important because the opposition, all of the opposition parties, which are very internally diverse, ranging from like a far right party to, uh, you know, socialist parties, have agreed to run as like a united bloc to topple Orban. It's like their last ditch effort to go through the democratic system to try to get rid of him. So he's really pulling out all the stops to make sure that he can, even in the rigged game he's constructed, still win. The second thing is this. Uh, it gives him more power over institutions he doesn't like. Arguably, the, the current wave of crackdowns on LGBT rights began in 2018. It really intensified in 2020, but uh, in 2018 was the year that the government banned the teaching of gender studies in universities. Right now, only two universities in Hungary had gender studies programs. So it wasn't like this big thing in, in one sense. In another sense, though, it gave the government levers of power over universities, which are a place where dissent can form, where uh, students often organize to protest governments that are authoritarian or overreach on civil liberties. And so now, teaching an ideology that threatens the government's official ideology is, is no longer legal. Universities can lose their accreditation for teaching it. So that's a way of, of creating policy levers that can be used to keep civil society in line. Right? And the third reason is it helps like build international support for the Hungarian regime. You see a lot of American conservatives praise Hungary nowadays. They try to downplay the authoritarian stuff, and they say it's just about the social conservatism. They see it as a model 
for what an actual social conservative politics might look like beyond what they see as the wishy-washiness of the American right, the unwillingness to use power effectively in the way that Hungary has. And so this, it, it helps them recruit defenders internationally that they would lose if they were just engaging in a purely authoritarian politics. You, if you get people to align on your side in the culture war, they're willing to overlook a lot, even blatant rigging of the democratic game. And so for Hungary, this kind of policy is extremely useful, even if it makes the European Union and other European national soccer teams very mad at them. I think that's a really important point that you hit on at the very end there, which is that authoritarian and authoritarian-minded politicians will very often use culture wars as a purposeful distraction in many ways to push through changes to the judiciary, changes to the rule of law, to institute more serious controls over the levers of power and will use riling up the base for whatever culture war shiny object at the moment is salient. You know, we've seen this in lots of places. Uh, we've <laughs> seen Donald Trump use this many times. Um, I think there's also a, an additional kind of factor here that, that touches on one of the other points you made how the, the rise of this kind of anti-LGBTQ agenda also somewhat coincides with a decline of the refugee crisis being a salient point in yeah, Europe. Yeah, that's a great, great point, Jen. Yeah. Right. So if you think of it as maybe the peak being 2015 of the refugee crisis, you know, post-Arab Spring, post the onset of the Syrian civil war, et cetera, mass kind of migration to Europe. Hungary was very much on the front lines of that. Orban staking out an incredibly hardline position against accepting refugees and migrants and made that the rallying cry for his base, uh, despite the fact that Hungarians themselves, uh, thousands of them were political refugees uh, for a long time in the 50s and in the end of the Soviet Union. But, you know, God forbid they see any similarities between, you know, Hungarian refugees and other refugees. Um, that in of itself is a very controversial point to even bring up in Hungary. But that migrant crisis began to ebb, um, although there's still significant, you know, migration to Europe, the massive kind of huge crisis that we saw in, in 2015, 2016 has ebbed. And so that salience of that, you know, rallying point for the base, the anti-immigrant sentiment, the nationalist rah-rah sentiment has, has waned. And so you need something else, right? You need something else to, to gin up the base. You then start to see, okay, Orban picks this. Let's do this thing because this can also rally the base. There's also, I think, the last point is the connection in Russia. You know, Russia has passed very similar laws banning, you know, what they call the LGBTQ propaganda. It's very much similarly argued to be, you know, protection of children, et cetera, et cetera. And seeing, I think, the effectiveness of that in Russia. Again, seeing authoritarians using culture war things to distract from trying to expand their grip on the layers of power. Vladimir Putin is very, very good at this. And I think Orban probably didn't miss that and and noticed and has has adopted that as well. So I think that that's also kind of driving this. So there's a there's a really neat article that explores a lot of these points. It, it, it's an academic article by one Polish and one Hungarian scholar titled The uh, gendered modus operandi of the illiberal transformation in Hungary and Poland. Now, Poland, you may that be aware is, uh, of I'm sorry. Could you yeah. Yeah, sl Ro slow down and say that, that title <laughs> again? Uh, the what? gendered modus operandi of the illiberal transformation in Hungary and Poland. Dibs on that okay. band name. 
Yeah, that is that is that is now your band name. The you know jargony title aside, you know it's this, this Polish scholar and this Hungarian scholar talking God bless about academia. Yeah, re- regimes in their respective countries. The Polish government's very similar to the Hungarian government ideologically, though it has not been as effective at dismantling democracy. <laughs> not for want of trying, however. Yeah, no, they have tried. Yes. Um, so the article describes the the gender, like the the notion of gender in the Hungarian and the Polish governments, serves as what they call a symbolic glue. Uh, It functions in the illiberal transformation as a symbol of everything that is wrong with the current state of politics, right? The idea is that you you use this catch-all notion of social decline as, and I quote them here, an enemy figure that allowed illiberal actors to unite under one umbrella term various issues attributed to the liberal agenda, right? So the idea is that you can blame everything on this creeping redefinition of the family, society, et cetera, and argue that this is the root cause of all sorts of different problems, and Orban does in a, in a variety of different ways. And it serves as kind of like a master concept for the government when it's talking to its own audience and appealing to its own base. So you say this stuff over and over again, and everybody starts to understand on your side, starts to understand politics through this lens. The government is defending the family and the Hungarian nation against the European globalist agenda that wants to replace all of us with Muslim immigrants and gay people. And that really, it's a very, very powerful way of appealing to a country that has a long history of subordination by outside powers and is like relatively socially conservative, uh, judging by a European baseline. Uh, and so it, you know, it, they they do this because it works, right? It's not it's not coming out of nowhere, but at the same time, it, it's also like normatively horrible in a variety of different ways. It's worth being clear on that. So we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to let Alex uh, talk about soccer for a really long time. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about uh, the new anti-LGBT law in Hungary during the break, which unfortunately you did not get a chance to listen to. We talked about a very weird experience that I had on the Hungarian-Serbian border where I found a restaurant that was somehow a vegan restaurant in the Serbian countryside or a vegetarian, I can't remember exactly, that had its entire menu decked out in Jewish stars. And and the other hosts thought it was a trap for me, that somehow someone <laughs> had set up something that was designed because, to catch Because me. of all places for Zach Peterson right. to, to stumble upon on the Serbian-Hungarian border. 
It would so- <laughs> be a vegetarian restaurant with slightly confused Jewish motif. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't kosher. I asked. It's not like it was run by Jews that they somehow just had Jewish stars everywhere. They just like the decoration because, you know, <laughs> that's what I think of when I think of Eastern Europe is liking Jewish stars. And when they serve you food, <laughs> they go, go cowboys. <laughs> <laughs> it's a trap. It's, it's a trap. Yeah, uh, yeah some, somehow. I don't know. I made it out alive. It's <laughs> But uh, so we, we we talked about the law. Now it's now let's talk a little bit about the European backlash to the law. Maybe starting with soccer. Maybe. Yeah, I think this is sort of like the this interesting story. It's not just about Hungary, right? It's about the way that soccer plays into broader European politics. So Alex, I'm not even, I'm not even going to tee you up any more than that, buddy. You can just just start talking. I know you're very happy. Go for it, bud. Sure. So right now, what's uh, the Euro 2020 European Championships are happening, and I did not misspeak. It is the 2020 Championships. They're happening this year because last year was COVID, so it is a delayed uh, by one year. But it's a quadrennial- like the Olympics. Exactly. It's a quadrennial tournament, and it's basically to find out who is the best European soccer team on the continent right now. So I feel like this, you know, this law story would have been pretty big um, still, but it sort of as fate would have it. Germany, like the EU's leading country, was playing Hungary in a really important game on Wednesday. Where or match, if, as I hear they're sometimes called. Indeed, on the pitch. Uh, and Hungary, had they beaten Germany, would have eliminated Germany. Like, it would have been a, like a really big deal. And if Germany had tied or won, it would have eliminated Hungary. So, like, there was a lot on the line. And there, there was just a controversy surrounding this game from the beginning, because, of course, in the politics. And there's usually always politics surrounding soccer games, like... You know, when England plays Scotland, which happened in this tournament, or when an Austrian player with Serbian ancestry makes racist Albanian chants at Albanian players. Like, it's it's all kind of wacky and terrible stuff. So anyway, the politics surrounding this game. Because of the law and how much of Europe has felt about it, the game was played in Munich, of all places, and the city of Munich wanted to light up the Allianz Arena, which is um, the, the big stadium where they played in. They wanted to light it up in the rainbow pride flag colors. UEFA, which is Europe's governing body, uh, governing, excuse me, UEFA, which is Europe's soccer governing body, um, said, not full governing body. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was, that was, that was a little bit of like a Freudian slip. Absolutely. Yeah. Like what, what really runs Europe? I mean, it kind of does. Uh, <laughs> that's for another episode, uh, that I will happily listen to. Um, I'm not sure it is actually, but go go on, finish this immediate story. Yeah. So all this is like, and, and UEFA denied it because they thought like, oh, well the flag is too political. And so, you know, you can't have the flag, you know, light up the stadium. So a bunch of other stadiums throughout Germany did. The German fans brought the pride flag. They, like, dressed up in rainbow colors. And the captain of the team, the goalkeeper, Manuel Neuer, who had been wearing a rainbow R-band throughout the tournament, um, and it was almost, and was investigated because of it, um, and was told, like, it's fine, you can wear it. He wore it during the game. Uh, so interestingly enough, Hungary is like winning the game for most of it. And then towards the end, uh, Leon Goretzka uh, scores the the tying goal, which sent Germany through and eliminated Hungary. But Goretzka in his goal celebration put his hands into a heart shape towards the Hungarian fans as he was like running in celebration in what was a, a pretty epic troll. And he has been not shy about his um, like sociopolitical views. Um, and so, yeah, he scores the goal, which is basically saying bye bye Hungary and giving them the heart sign, which is like both. Heart, you guys, and also like acceptance and love and all that kind of stuff. So that um, is that's really funny. I, I didn't watch the end of the game. I saw a lot of it. I'm actually writing about this. Alex has written a piece about it too, uh, and so I, I wanted to see what the 
situation would be. And Hunger is winning for for almost all the game, so I just missed the very end. And apparently, that's when the, that's when the good stuff happened. Yeah, I mean, it was it was pretty exciting. And uh, what's fascinating is actually at the same time, there's another game happening. This is just sort of interesting, but I think it ties in. Uh, France was playing Portugal in Budapest, and the Budapest stadium is completely full because Hungary's lifted like all COVID restrictions. And I was shocked because you know soccer in Hungary has a really long, great history. They used to be some one of the best players in the world in like the 1950s. But they have this phenomenal new modern stadium with, you know, thousands of people. And it is because, like, Orban is using soccer to, like, promote some of his agenda. And it's a, sort of like a bread and circus kind of thing. And he's re, re you know, building new stadiums, um, refurbishing others. And he was planning to attend the Hungary-Germany game. But because of all this sort of, like, hoopla around it, and because I think he doesn't like rainbow colors, um, he decided to, like, not go. Um, and, he, and, and, you know, he didn't go to the match. But, like, it, it is a double hit on Orban in a way, right? Like, you had Germany, which is leading the charge against his law, beating him at the sport he's, like, trying to promote, which he loves, to also get through, like, a lot of his issues uh, through. And, and politics through soccer is a very he common thing. He used to play himself, right? And he did. Semi-professionally. But, yeah, like, he, he's just a big soccer fan. He sometimes wears the, the scarf of his team, like, on the parliament floor. So... Uh, yeah, it's just a, it was just a fascinating thing. It, it, it's it's kind of hard to overstate how how important that is actually for her, for him personally. Like when I was there, I went to his hometown where he built like across the street from his house there a giant soccer stadium. Like it looks like it should be for a large scale club, and like this is a small town. Like it's not it's not a big place, but it, it looks very professional. And like people got really mad about that because it seemed like a giant waste of money to support the building of this thing and and it was right it's just the guy loves soccer so much that he had to put one put a stadium across the street from his like longtime home didn't uh he also didn't they pass a, a regulation that instead of paying corporate tax you can yeah. pay to the to the nation to fund the nation's soccer you you can you can you can send your taxes to soccer clubs and so right. Hungarian soccer the Hungarian soccer league and the clubs that that make it up have garnered roughly like $3 billion in extra revenue because of this tax law. I mean, he's trying to develop uh, uh, like soccer in the country, one, again, because he loves it, but two, and I think it should be said, um, like, like, and I alluded to her, like Hungary has a really strong soccer tradition. Like some of the best players in the world, they, they won the World Cup in the 50s um, in the Olympics, and like one of the best players in the world, Pushkash, like comes from there and the stadium in Budapest is named after him. And like, if I'm Orban and I'm trying to build a, a, a you know, like a, a grand national project around soccer, like, he, I think he's trying to like make Hungarian soccer great again. Like I really think that's um, right. a, a big deal for it. And like developing a domestic league and all that is is part of it. And I should say, you know, I, I don't know what the, I'm not going to comment on how like the Hungarian players themselves felt. Like they just wanted to win, right? It's a competition. And they were put in a really tough group with France, Portugal, and Germany. Um, like there was zero chance they were going to get out of the group, but they played extremely well. You know, they tied France, they they tied Germany, and they nearly tied Portugal until, like, the last few minutes of the game. I mean, they they played about as well as any weak team could ever play in a tournament like that. So even though they're eliminated, um, like, as just a fan of the game, I was really impressed with how they played. That, that's just me, side note. Yeah, hard to, hard to like, blame the team for this, but it right. as so often happens, right? Soccer just gets bound up in international disputes in Europe, right? And I think that, I said this, you know, a few minutes ago, Alex, but when you mentioned that UEFA was Europe's real governing organization, like, yeah, obviously it's not, right? The EU is. But in a way, right, a lot of European 
political grievances and linkages are articulated through the way that soccer is governed on the continent. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, look, it, it, I think it will matter that UEFA has decided that the rainbow pride flag is like a political statement, right? I mean, I, I know the EU doesn't feel that way, but it's going to matter to a lot of people because I will guarantee you more Europeans are, wa- are caring about what's happening in world soccer tournaments and like soccer leagues than they are about the general politics of the continent. So like when the when UEFA makes a decision like that, like it reverberates and it, and it will lead. And like Orban was able to use it, right? He was just kind of like, look, I also don't believe this is a political thing. Like you and UEFA has ruled on it. Like this matters um, what these people say. And like they're, the way UEFA governs the way like countries play each other, um, who can play, like all that is interesting. I, I think sort of a side a note is like Israel plays against European teams, right? Because UEFA let Israel in because they everyone thought it would be a bad idea if Israel played against like Middle Eastern countries. Fair enough. <laughs> right. So like, th- but that's like sort of an interesting thing that like if UEFA hadn't done that, it, like soccer in Israel would be probably like sort of semi-non-existent or at least on the international stage. So the, like the, these sorts of like side decisions that influence a lot of stuff. And I mean, I could go on about this forever, um, including like even just the politics of like Spanish soccer, which which is like deeply embroiled with the Catalan separatist movement. But like it, if you genuinely want to follow like European politics deep down, you I genuinely believe you need to understand the soccer dynamics, because if you don't understand the soccer dynamics, you're going to miss a lot of nuance. I mean, wasn't it George Orwell who once wrote that sport is war minus shooting? You know, one I mean, of the there is arguments- shooting in soccer. Okay, fair enough. Okay, um, uh, but that's not what he meant. I, what? No, he was definitely talking about shots on goal. <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, it, it, not to get, like, too nerdy here, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, that's what we do on the show. Right. I mean, he was arguing against the kind of idea of sport as being, like, a substitute or an outlet for nations instead of fighting war. And he was saying that, no, it actually is more likely to to raise tensions than to promote peace among nations. But, you know, that is that has been one of the kind of sociological arguments for international sports, right, is that you support your team and then you fight it out on the pitch or the field or whatever other platform you're playing on the court. I don't really know. But, you know, that, that it's a it's a way for nations to kind of express aggression and, you know, nationalism in a in a more constructive outlet and, you know, Orwell's point was that, okay, but it just, like, reinforces nationalism and it's going to end up, you know, making things more tense between nations. And I think, you know, there, there's a point to both arguments, but I think literally seeing now that it's actually, you know, it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing here, right? Like, is the tension, was it the soccer match that was raising the tension or was it the tensions that were just playing out in the soccer match? But I think, you know, it's not like weird or new that politics between countries is playing out through sport. That is like the history, you know, we've seen that with Olympics boycotts in the past, and et cetera. So, you know, that, that's a fairly normal thing. And in some ways it's kind of designed to be that way. I think it is more in this case that soccer is a, is a venue for the politics rather than the other way around. Yeah. Right, because there's there's a whole EU layer of politicking surrounding the Hungarian law right now that's entirely independent of what's going on with soccer. So there was a meeting in Luxembourg on Tuesday between the EU countries, and I'm going to read the Washington Post account of it. Um, Ministers of the 27 EU countries who met Tuesday in Luxembourg devoted much of their meeting to the Hungarian law in an unusually raw debate, according to officials who participated in the discussion. One minister said he was appalled, according to one senior diplomat familiar with the talks. This one is really going beyond what we can accept, the senior diplomat said. This is so against the grain of everything the EU stands for. 
And the EU commissioner uh, has uh, Ursula von der Leyen has said she's going to send a legal letter to Hungary that's going to detail concerns that the law violates uh, EU laws, right? And to begin some kind of process uh, if Hungary doesn't back down on this law, um, some process of EU litigation. I don't I'm not familiar enough with EU human rights law to know exactly how that would play out, but. It strikes me that this is, right, like, the the EU has for a long time let Hungary get away with a lot of stuff in terms of cracking down on democratic rights, minority rights, LGBT rights, etc. But something about the the sensorial and cruel nature of this particular bill seems to have triggered a really powerful EU response. Or maybe it's just that the Europeans got really fed up with ignoring Hungary, that all this stuff build up, built up over the course of a long period of time, and some EU members recently have gotten really angry about the inaction from the central European authorities about Hungarians' authoritarian turn. Or maybe it was, in part, the soccer dispute that raised the salience of this and made people uh, more willing to go to bat on this. I don't think it's that, but <laughs> Sorry. <it's, laughs> Wrong sports metaphor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> willing to go right. to the penalty my, spot. Even my, 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 I know the bats are not involved in soccer. No, no, no. Look, my Americanness is going to come out eventually in this conversation. <laughs> so. we're, all, we're already calling it soccer. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fair enough. Football involves throwing, obviously. <laughs> it's in the name. <laughs> I think you're right, Zach. But I do find, and I know I alluded earlier, like, I think the soccer match highlighted this. I think it would have been a big deal without the soccer game. But I think it highlighted it, and I think, and it made it so you saw people wearing like pride flags in the stadium. You saw a fight break out between German officials and Hungarian officials online, like over stadium illumination. And then you had media ask prominent soccer players, like who have a massive platform, like what they thought about the law. And you had a bunch of like German sports heroes be like, "Yeah, it's bad. I don't like it. Like they should end it." And like that adds public pressure, right? Again, this could have been just like a political fight that would have made it big in the European press and like would have gotten a a, a sort of a, a, a glancing mention in, in, in global press. And it probably would have like died out. I'm sure they would have, you know, gone back and forth, but there wouldn't have been this spotlight. And again, it just happened to be that Germany and Hungary were playing. And so, you know, soccer was not a, a cause of any of this, but I think it, it served as a genuine platform. And in Allianz Arena, we saw like the, de- the long running debate about what Europe stands for, the future of Europe, like play out in real time. We saw players do heart signs. We saw people wearing pride flags. We saw Hungarian fans putting up like anti-LGBTQ. So- like this was a thing. Like this was your- the European debate in miniature with a massive platform and a massive spotlight. And I, I think if you're a politician, you realize that, like, that makes it harder for you to ignore this issue or at least put it on the back burner. Like, you now have to deal with it if you're Ursula von der Leyen, the EU commissioner, who also happens to be German. Um, so, like... Oh, just If happens. the name didn't yeah. give it away. <laughs> right. Who just happens to be German. So, you know, I, I think I'm not giving, like, soccer credit. It is not the tournament that did it. But without the tournament and without that game, I, like, I genuinely don't think we'd be having this conversation. Well, not exactly this one. Well, right, but 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 I mean, but like, and sorry, like, but not worldly. But I mean, like, in general, I couldn't like, resist, Alex. No, fair enough. Um, but like, I, I think it, it is it is brought it to the fore, and like, you know, sort of like side comments, like, without this tournament, we wouldn't have talked about. We're just gotten attention. The weird tensions between like ethnic Serbs and ethnic Albanians, or like, wait, why do England and Scotland play each other? Aren't they in the United Kingdom? Like, y- you start talking about like the rivalries there. Like, it does provide a platform 
that exposes the politics and, and the tensions between nations, um, although it sometimes can heal them too, like when South Korea and Japan hosted a World Cup together. So uh, I, again, I, I find like seeing the world through soccer, the soccer lens, like a really helpful and clarifying way to see it. And like, Wait, thanks to this game. I, I have never mentioned that before. <laughs> I, I can't think of a more perfect send off for Alex than him yep. getting to like end the episode on that, on that particular note with his love of soccer, man. <sighs> last week we made fun of you a lot, but we're really going to miss you. And I wanted to roast you again, but now I just feel bad and sad. And yeah, it sucks. Yeah. So Alex, what are you going to be doing in your new job? Can you, can you tell worldly listeners a little? Yeah, I'm going to be moving to Politico. Um, and I will be never writing- heard of it. No, it's a, it's a new <laughs> new startup, new new thing. Uh, and I'll be writing a, a daily newsletter about sort of the national security stuff happening in D.C., uh, you know, what's going on in the White House, Congress, intelligence community, Pentagon, State Department, kind of what I've been doing here a little bit, but with uh, just sort of like a, a daily in-your-inbox kind of angle. And I uh, hope you subscribe, please, because I like food and having a roof over my head. Um, and, uh, you know, look look forward to engaging with you guys over there. And if you ever want me back, happy to come back, but understand, uh, you know, it's I, I'm leaving you guys, so I feel bad. I, I'm going to miss you guys. This was a, a great experience working with y'all, and uh, we'll, we'll miss it tremendously. We 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 will too. Yeah, um, you've been a great part of the show, and I'm going to miss all of your terrible, terrible jokes, and even worse singing. Um, you said but, brilliant and beautiful wrong. No, I think I I think I spoke clearly. Um, I'll but just have to sing Bismarcky more. <laughs> to make to make up for it. Uh, and worldly listeners uh, can just instead look forward to us uh, utterly roasting Alex on Twitter instead of on Slack at work as we normally do. I'm just going to do it publicly on Twitter and just bother you all day long because I have no one else to talk to. Um, so <laughs> I'm just going to bug you. Uh, what are you going to do about your Twitter handle, Alex Wardbox? Yeah, that's a that's a big debate, and by debate I mean just something I'm gonna have to deal with on the weekend. I think. <laughs> yeah. But like all, all the handles that are available, there are too many Alex Wards out in the world, so it has to be something probably weird. Um, Alex I'll Ward Politico. Out. That doesn't have yeah, as, as good a ring, I think. It really doesn't. No. Like, it's probably because it's not as good as Vox. Uh, so maybe, maybe yeah, maybe you should stay. Maybe you should change <laughs> it to like Tony Flags or something. <laughs> Tony oh, Flags. Oh, <laughs> Sophie appearance. Sophie appearance. Everybody. I would I would love to change it to Tony Flags, but I do worry that like if some people are like I want to see what that guy's up to, they'd be like, where did he go? And then they're gonna be like, why is it Tony Flags? And it's gonna cause a lot more problem. <laughs> well, Can't Tony, Flags. Tony Flags really, really. I'm funny. Tony Flags. We will miss you dearly, and we wish you all the best, Tony Thanks. Flags. Thank Don't you. fear, Gracias. worldly listeners. Though we are, um, Jen and I will still be here. Uh, to talk with you guys. We have some exciting programming planned for the summer. We're, we're going to be out periodically on vacation. So we'll do some other stuff, uh, maybe surprising, maybe interesting. But the future of Worldly is strong. Jen and I are still here. The show will go on as, as sad as we are to leave Alex. So we'll we'll talk to you guys soon. And feel free to send lots of emails about how angry you are that he is leaving. <laughs> To, to, to worldlyadvox.com or jenniferadvox.com or whatever the Politico email is. Feel free to email them. I'm, I'm kidding. Do, do not email Politico, please. That, that, that would be pretty funny. Just send them to like the, like whatever the main, like letters at politico.com or whatever. Okay, let's not. <laughs> we like Politico. We have lots of friends there too. So we are happy that they are having Alex. If, you know, if we can't have him, it's okay for them to have him, I guess. That was getting dangerously close to, if I can't have him, no one can. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that controlling as a boss. Yeah, that's I, I don't very, think. very creepy. But seriously, All right. we wish you the best. 
Yeah. Thanks, y'all. Appreciate it. And you're dead to me. And listeners, don't don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts. You know, you know the drill at this point. You've listened to the show a lot. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Bye. Oh yeah. I could just aggressively clear my throat. Let me clear my throat. Let me clue my throat. I can't throat. Oh, she's an old man. She's an old man. Oh my god. Disgusting old man. I hate everything. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm Tony Flags. <laughs>